you all to the Department of Defense's Bloggers Roundtable for Friday, February 25th, 2011. My name is Petty Officer William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call today. A note to the bloggers on the line, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect our guest time, keeping questions succinct and to the point. And we ask also, if you are not asking a question, please place your phone on mute. Today our guest is Marine Corps Major General Melvin G. Spies, First Marine Expeditionary Force Deputy Commanding General and First Marine Expeditionary Brigades Commanding General, who will discuss Exercise Pacific Horizon 2011. And uh, Major, Major General Spies, with that, if you have an opening statement, you can go ahead with that now. Great, thank you. Good morning. I'd like to thank everyone for participating uh, and taking interest in the fine work our Marines and sailors are doing out here on the West Coast as we work to maintain and enhance our core competencies in expeditionary operations. Included in the room is Colonel Tim Fitzgerald. He is the G3 for the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, and he serves as the Chief of Staff for the 1st Marine Expeditionary Brigade. I'll open with, uh, with an opening statement just so I can ensure uh, we can get the talking points out and maybe uh, initiate the dialogue. I'm working from a written document for obvious reasons, and we'll be more than happy to make it available to anybody uh, should you want. Pacific Horizon 2011, as part of our annual training plan, prepares us to conduct crisis response at the Marine Expeditionary Brigade level in partnership with Expeditionary Strike Group 3. We will move personnel and equipment from sea lift platforms to amphibious ships for subsequent movement ashore or directly to air and surface craft capable of ship-to-shore delivery, conduct of humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and security operations. Maritime prepositioning plays a significant role in maintaining our ability to respond to a crisis across the range of military operations. The oceans of the world are the maneuver space for the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps team. Littoral regions are home to 80% of the world's population. 90% of the world's trade and commerce takes place on the oceans. 60% of that commerce travels through straits and strategic choke points. The U.S. keeps maritime prepositioning squadrons forward postured where they can quickly close on these areas of vital national interest in the event of crisis. Sailors and Marines link up with these assets at sea to respond and effectiveness in supporting our nation's strategic interests. Despite the recent year's focus of prolonged operations ashore, sailors and Marines have conducted more than 100 amphibious operations since 1990, and maritime prepositioning has played a significant role in many of those operations. For example, in 2003, 70,000 Marines and sailors moved into the Kuwaiti Theater of Operations for the initial staging of forces for Operation Iraqi Freedom. The ability to build a complete Marine Expeditionary Force, inclusive of integrated logistics sustainment or organic fixed and rotary wing aviation in excess of 350 aircraft, hinged on the strategic mobility provided through maritime prepositioning. The 1st Marine Expeditionary Force from Camp Pendleton was reinforced by the 4th Marine Expeditionary Brigade out of the East Coast by U.S. Navy amphibious ships. MPS enabled the rapid return of 1st Marine Expeditionary Force to contribute to the response to the Iraq insurgency, 
reinforcing the inherent flexibility of naval expeditionary capabilities. And I think we're all familiar with Marine Corps' success in turning the corner on the insurgency in El Anbar in advance of the surge. In December 2004, the most destructive tsunami ever recorded devastated littoral areas from Indonesia to South Africa. In about 10 days, six ships from Maritime Prepositioning Squadron 3 arrived in the region delivering millions of pounds in aid. Marines and sailors from the Okinawa-based 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force and 3rd Marine Expeditionary Brigade quickly mobilized and were able to assist in the disaster relief efforts, which were greatly enhanced by maritime prepositioning. Equipped with helicopter flight decks and capable of producing tens of thousands of gallons of fresh water, these MPF ships provided a sea-based approach in getting supplies to those areas where access was restricted. Just last summer, Marine Forces made strategic statements in the European Command Theater of Operations, a theater long considered a place with little to no role for Marines, especially since the end of the Cold War. In the aftermath of the Russian-Georgian conflict, we have been engaged demonstrating unmatched and unparalleled abilities to support European Command interests throughout the theater. We conducted both an in-stream and pier-side offload of MPF in Latvia, to include a subsequent road march and convoy, the railing of tanks, armored amphibious vehicles, and light armored vehicles to multiple sites within the country. Military attaches in Latvia were invited to observe the exercise, including those from Russia. At the same time, a special purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force conducted an amphibious landing in Estonia in partnership with Estonian Army Combat Engineers. Let me note the recent news reports about the request from Baltic countries for NATO defense plans and the Russian response. MPF and amphibious power projection provide the commander of U.S. European Command and the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe operational flexibility and options for force buildup, reinforcements, and statements of resolve. I think those are representative examples of the inherent utility of the Navy Marine Corps team enabled by the flexibility brought by MPF. During our exercise, Pacific Horizon 2011, we will focus on the Marine Expeditionary Brigade as our most potent crisis response capability, a flexible responsive force that is an enabler for joint combined and interagency capabilities, which normally require more time and mobility to plan, deploy, and employ around the world. The MED is the middleweight fighter recently described by the Commandant. Our ability to get organized and move quickly predicated on particular situations and conditions across the range of military operations offers decision makers the opportunity to gain time and the initiative in responding to unforeseen situations throughout the globe. By merging the weight and volume advantages of sea lift with the speed of airlift, maritime pre-positioning mitigates the tyranny of distance and gives our nation this unparalleled force projection capability. We will exercise the marrying of amphibious forces with maritime prepositioning forces and projecting ourselves ashore across the beach without use or aid of a port. We will initially respond to a humanitarian disaster, but the scenario will degrade requiring the movement of combat forces ashore for security operations. This is genuinely a unique and unmatched in all the world. A capability envisioned decades ago as future planners saw the challenges we are now facing in the availability of strategic lift. 
What drives us is the requirement to be absolutely responsive to our nation's security needs. Maritime prepositioning is a comprehensive, full-spectrum capability that significantly enhances our role as America's force in readiness, able to respond today to today's crises with today's forces today, even without access to ports and runways. Not simply to be the most ready when the nation is least ready, but not to limit our ability to respond to a crisis or a need because we have confined ourselves to how the rest of the world's military forces are configured and equipped. We will not meet the needs of our nation if we move in a direction that is conventional in nature. It is more than providing a role for the Marine Corps, it is providing options and capabilities for America. The inherent utility of the Marine Corps revolves around our ability to partner with the Navy, using the sea and maritime domain to maneuver and deliver Marines, regardless of task or mission. We remain grounded in that expeditionary capability uh, and character as we adapt to the needs of the future security environment. With that said, I'm ready to field any of your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, Andrew, you were first on the line, so you can go ahead with your question. Thank you. General, uh, good morning. Andrew Lugan here, Living Next Magazine. Appreciate you taking the time, sir. Certainly. General, I'd like to talk to you about the amphibious fleet. Uh, at first, the Navy was going to take both the Peleliu and Nassau out of, out of service. And just spirit of negotiations, uh, the Peleliu will remain and the Nassau will be decommed uh, sometime in the next two weeks. With the San Antonio class spending more time in the dockyards than on sea, how do we get Marines from point A to point B if there's no big decks available? Well, it, it's not uh, the situation that there are no big big decks available. There aren't as many as we would like to have access to. Um, and I think in that environment, Andrew, MPF becomes more critical uh, because it does become the means by which we can lift significant amount of equipment and sustainment to a theater uh, that, that needs that sort of response. Um, we, we are we're moving into uh, a low point in terms of amphibious shipping. Uh, we expect to be out of that if you look at the shipbuilding plan and the commitments of the Chief of Naval Operations. A little bit after mid-decade, uh, we should be back to, to the kind of fleet that we uh, believe we need. Uh, so I think in this intervening period, one, we're going to have to be very imaginative. There's no question about that. But we will depend more on the MPF in, in this particular period. Okay. So we can I follow up? Sure. Okay. Sir, so if I could follow up on this, please. Having, I, I know there's a shortage because the, the next San Antonio's aren't coming on stream for another four, maybe five years, assuming everything works correctly. When you need amphibs, you need them next week for Haiti. You need them yesterday in Tripoli. If having having something that's scheduled doesn't help doesn't help doing doesn't help doing Neo or doesn't help doing HADR tomorrow, does it? Well, um, you're certainly correct in, in that regard, but uh, the situation uh, it, that we're facing is is just there. I mean, you know the physics of, of ship operations and shipbuilding, and, and uh, I mean, we're just, we're in this situation. So we, we don't have, I think, a whole lot of options available. Um, and the, Navy, the Navy is facing some incredible pressures 
of all sorts of competing demands. I mean, starting with maintaining the ballistic missile fleet. Uh, so, so this is a tough time that we're just going to have to work our way through. In that regard, uh, as General Amos has explained, when people ask questions about a potential conflict in Korea as it relates to the heavy commitment we have in Afghanistan, as the crisis occurs, we will muster and throw everything we have at it. And if that means moving ships across uh, the oceans, we'll do that. Um, I mean, if you look at the recent crises we have, uh, either the tsunami in, in Westpac or Haiti uh, just a couple of years ago, we, we've just we've had to reach down and scramble and push the ships out to sea, maybe when we would have preferred to keep them in port. So in that regard, we're just going to have to ride those, those 29 of them real, real hard. Uh, we are working very hard with Third Fleet here to get a much better understanding of the ship maintenance and refit cycles so that we can better anticipate what's going on with the ships for our own planning purposes. We monitor ship readiness here on a weekly basis. We're getting smarter in that regard, whether it's to partner with them on new capabilities or maintaining the communications baseline that we need to have in the ships, or awareness of where the ships are in their maintenance uh, uh, cycles or conditions so that we can, again, respond with whatever we have available. Um, I, I'm not sure what else uh, what we can say. We're going to have to work our way through this uh, in, until we can get the new ships online. Okay, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. <clears throat> and Phyllis, you were next. Yes, Phyllis Zimbler-Miller, Mrs. Lieutenant Blogspot.com. I want to talk about the Somali pirates. I thought that the Marines originally were started in order to deal with the Barbary pirates or some other pirates, and why do I not hear more about what the United States is doing? And, and then when four ships are in convoy behind a yacht, is that the best use of resources? Isn't there a better strategic plan? Um. The, the United States' response to the pirate situation um, in, in that region is, is national policy. Um, so it, it, I, could, I could talk about what our capabilities are, but when everything is said and done, it's the president who will determine what actions we as a nation will take and what, what tasks will be given to us. I can assure you that there are a range of actions that we can take uh, that, that certainly have been considered and are available. Uh, so, so there are a whole bunch of things that, that can be done. Uh, it, it's a matter of how the president determines we're going to deal with the problem. In this particular case, uh, you know, a yacht's a tough target to deal with. Um, and if you've ever uh, watched uh, a ship takedown, um, I, I can't imagine something more difficult than a yacht, especially one that has kind of overwhelming force on the bad guy side. There were a whole lot of pirates on that ship. Um, so that would have been a challenging target anyway. Uh, and, and I'm not exactly sure what options were considered 
and what action was being taken at the time that uh, that the killings took place, and eventually we were able to, to, to take uh, to take the yacht. I have to tell you, I mean, we've been working hard on maritime interdiction operations out here, and and if you recall, 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit was uh, was pretty successful with uh, uh, the, the Magellan Star, the Magellan right, the Maris. Uh, a couple, well, the Magellan Star is the one we took down a couple of months ago, but that wasn't a yacht. And, and we trained to bigger ships, uh, cargo ships, oilers, uh, container ships. We really don't train to a yacht. We, we in, in our thinking, that's not the target that we would think that we would be thrown against. Uh, so, so that one would have been challenging for any circumstance. May I have a follow-up? What I want to know is, then, without asking you to reveal, obviously, is there going to come a point when the United States is finally going to say we're not going to continue to allow all these ships? I mean, Wall Street Journal reported that there are 30 ships and 670 people being held hostage at the moment. I mean, that's a lot of people. I, I, have, I have to agree with you, um, uh, but, you know, I again, We've got all sorts of things we can do if we're told to take this task on. That, that question is really better suited uh, for, for our policymakers at, at State Department and Department of Defense. And I'm not saying that to put it off. Uh, I, I certainly have an opinion. My opinion is interesting but, but not relevant uh, just because we're not a part of that decision-making chain. Again, our, our role is to talk about what options are available, what we can do to deal with the problem, uh, but we're not, we're not the policy uh, makers on this one. And, uh, I mean, your point is very, very well taken, uh, but, again, we don't really get a vote in that one. Okay, and you aren't at liberty to reveal, like, a couple of examples of, you know, hypothetical ways that you could deal with such situations? Well, I mean, you, you can think through all kinds of, of different options. Um, I mean, we, we can go after ships and we can take the ships down. We can put forces ashore. Uh, we could certainly, I mean, look at what we're doing in, in, the, uh, in, in uh, the Pakistan-Afghanistan region. If we can identify leaders, we can certainly strike the leaders uh, through all sorts of different means. Uh, so, so if if we were to you know sort of slew our targeting site on on the pirates, um, I mean they they appear to be uh, somewhat sophisticated. They don't appear to be as sophisticated as you know some of the high end terrorists we're going against, uh, and, and we're able to, to track those guys down. So I suspect that uh, again, if if we were to orient against the pirates, there's there's a lot of of, of damage we could bring. Of course, the, the, the hostage situation is, is very complex, and that's a large number of hostage, hostages to deal with. So I think resolving this problem would probably take a phased approach of convincing them that this is not the business they ought to be in, uh, and, and it would be to their advantage to uh, return the hostages and think of something else to do. Uh, and, and I think there are ways to do that. Uh, I, I don't have a good intel read on what happened on the yacht, uh, the killing of, of the four Americans 
real surprise to everybody. There are some indications that, that these were, you know, young pirates hyped up on drugs, uh, that other pirates might not have made a similar decision. Uh, so, so that one, I think, has thrown a lot of people right now uh, because we're not quite sure. Uh, they did not respond as we would typically expect in, in that sort of situation. So we, we'd have to think it through. But, but there are all sorts of things we could do. Again, everything from, from, from long-range standoff strikes to, uh, to putting forces ashore if necessary, taking down ships, uh, conducting patrols much closer to keep the pirates in. We can engage them at sea. Uh, you know, we can take out their, their motherships without a problem. We can take out the little boats if we get to the point where, where that's what we're going to do is we're just going to start uh, uh, ju just eliminating them altogether. So, so there are all sorts of, uh, I, I think, options available to us. Thank you, General. I appreciate your answer. And Sandra. Thank you. Um, good morning, General. Sandra Irwin with National Defense Magazine. Uh, I wanted to follow up on your comment and your initial remarks about the Marine Corps having uh, conducted 100 amphibious landings since 1990. Do you have a sense of how many of those operations were, were in an environment of, of a hostile environment? And in, as a, I guess as a follow-up to that, in this exercise, Pacific Horizons, um, how are you addressing, how is the Marine Corps preparing to conduct amphibious operations in hostile environments? Because that it seems to be a critical issue right now as the Marine Corps plans for the future is, do you have the necessary capabilities to, to be able to land uh, against an, in an environment of threats uh, and possibly adv more advanced threats than what you envision that uh, are right now? Well, um, we we have we have gone into uh, a number of environments that were not benign. Uh, obviously, the force projection from Task Force 58 into Afghanistan, a lot of that was uh, over and through Pakistan, but uh, it, it was uh, moving uh, almost directly into a hostile environment. Uh, we we've gone in in a couple of places where. The threats were were reasonably high, but but for sure we weren't working against uh, a prepared defense. Uh, our, our thinking is is obviously to avoid the prepared defense. I mean, the things that we're we're trying to gain with V twenty two air cushion landing craft uh, and things like that, the ability to move around prepared defenses, uh, even though we're going into into a, a, a combat situation. And the Navy has developed some superb capabilities. Um, they don't get a lot of publicity, but, but their ability to uh, really whittle away at air defense and anti-shipping uh, is pretty good. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons why we're able to rethink the EFB is the Navy's increased ability to defend against, to attack, strip away, and defend against anti-ship missiles. Uh, they're convinced that we no longer have to be on the other side of the radar horizon, about 25 nautical miles away. We can get in within 12 to 15. Uh, in, in our particular case, uh, MPF can come across the beach. It doesn't have to go to a port. So that gives us some flexibility. I mean, again, we can choose a place where the bad guy's not 
will not necessarily be. We can push ourselves ashore, we can isolate the landing site, and then project ourselves inland, we think, reasonably quickly. And uh, in this particular case, we're, we're going to initially emphasize humanitarian disaster relief. Uh, in, in this, it, it, what we want to do is uh, work our combat logistics regiment in some of their primary mission essential tasks. So, so we're using that scenario to, to get to them, to get to uh, making decisions about selective offload, um, what supplies to bring ashore, building up uh, all sorts of not necessarily combatant capabilities that they typically do. Uh, as, as the situation degenerates, in this particular case, we'll, we'll reorient on combat forces, but clearly as, as we would come in in this situation, or as we would, I think, in, in a, a, a less than permissive environment, uh, we, we would isolate the landing site and work very aggressively to push away anything that would be a threat. Uh, so we, we, still, we still have that capability. Again, the new... The, the, the cruisers and destroyers uh, that we have today uh, really do have the ability to go after command and control systems and, and anti-shipping systems uh, that, that can give us uh, a, a more sanitized environment in which to come ashore. The ships aren't going to spend a lot of time inside the threat ring. They're going to come inside the threat ring, threat ring for the delivery of forces, and then they'll move outside that threat ring as we get ourselves ashore and start working our way inland. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you get ashore, um, do you foresee possibly um, the IED threat being a, a problem? And in that case, how would you reconcile that um, with the need to have lighter equipment if you're going to need armor vehicles to contend with IEDs? IEDs are going to be a problem forever. Uh, there's, there's no question about it. Uh, we're, we're not going to have a situation uh, like we did in Somalia before Beirut where, where we're not facing those threats every time uh, Marines get on the road. Uh, but IEDs are a, a weapon of choice of uh, a non-complex threat. I mean, the, the terrorists are using it as opposed to a... Uh, a, a military-like force. Now, now, don't get me wrong, a defended site's going to have landmines, anti-personnel mines, I mean, everything that an IED is, and they're going to be placed in the ground in ways that, that we're not going to be able to easily discover. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why we, we would like to move away and around. Now, one of the things about... Uh, You've got mail that we're developing and we have available to us on MPF is the ability to add armor plating to include uh, uh, belly armor on, on, on tanks and other vehicles. And if it looks like that's the sort of environment and the threat that we're going to face, we will have to add that to uh, what we do either on the ships before we bring the equipment ashore or as we bring the equipment ashore, we'll pause, put the additional armor on, and then continue moving forward. So we're, we're, we're working our way through figuring that out, but we maintain that capability uh, at sea on MPF. We don't have the MRAPs there. There's no question about it. So we're talking about up-armored Humvees and all the rest of that. And if we're facing an IED threat, we'll have to go through all the other uh, means by which 
we use to, to try to work our way around the IEDs, whether it's the electronic uh, warfare equipment that we have on, on the vehicles or the skills that we train the Marines in, and we just move very, very slowly looking for the anomalies that, that might indicate that there is an IED out there. We, we, we certainly would have our uh, intelligence and surveillance uh, equipment up. We would look to see where those threats might be and seek to avoid those areas. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And with that, sir, um, we're right about at the end of our time. Um, I'd like to thank the bloggers for their awesome questions and, sir, for your responses. Uh, if you have any closing remarks, sir, the floor is yours. Sure. Well, um, we we didn't have the chance to talk about Pacific Horizons uh, as, as much as I would like, um, but but uh, we're working hard out here to, to work the bird fleet and with Expeditionary Strike Group 3. Um, and we're working hard on our, on our core capabilities. Uh, and, and one of the things that we're working with Pacific Horizon in conjunction with that last question is trying to exercise selective offload that would allow us to work on, on those things we need to pull off the ship predicated on whatever threat is ashore or a changing situation. So we certainly uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak to you this morning and uh, we will be open for media visits and media inquiries throughout the exercise, and, and we welcome any opportunity to speak to anybody uh, after this or uh, come out and visit us. We, we very much would like to show any of you all around. So, so thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much, sir, and once again, thank you to the bloggers. Uh, today's program will be available online at the bloggers link on DADLive.mil, where you'll be able to access a story based on today's call, along with source documents such as this audio file and a print transcript. Again, uh, thank you, Major General Spies, and thank you to the bloggers. This concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time. Thanks. General, thank you for the time today. Sure.